What's going on, friends and family? Welcome back to the podcast. It's the To The Men After Me podcast. I'm your host, Nico Williams. This is the audio letter to the boys that will become men in the generations that follow. And today, we're asking the question of why the Bible? What's up with the Bible? What's so important about the Bible? I'm glad that you decided to join us this afternoon this morning this weekend wherever you are whenever you are listening let's dive into it so the question is why the bible one of the reasons why i wanted to uh, discuss this question or talk about this topic in the first place is because man as a believer in christ my central authority is god and his word so to the to the boys that become men i, I want you to learn this lesson as soon as you can, as soon as you can, that the Bible ought to be your central figure of authority. Um, as soon as you begin to, you're old enough to understand it and try to piece together the what's going on in it. Uh, I, I'm, I'm just, you know, you, I'm, I'm talking frankly here, but man, a lot of the lessons that I learn, or a lot of the lessons that I, I try to teach in this, in this podcast are usually based off of something that's going on in my life, whatever I'm taking in. And one book that I'm taking in right now because of class is called Hearers and Doers. I'm currently in seminary school, and this book is called Hearers and Doers. And, man, at first it was a little bit of a rocky start, okay? It was a little rocky. But as I started getting into it and deeper and deeper, man, it it does have some really cool principles that I, I really want other people to understand and know. And one of the main ideas in this book is that uh, the central the central part of your worldview ought to be shaped by the Word of God. That's like one of the big ideas in this book. And what we're finding in our world today, for Christians included, particularly in Christians, this is why he, he's kind of writing the book, is that our worldview is not being shaped primarily by the Bible. Our worldview is being shaped by other things in the world and kind of reminds me of a few episodes ago I was talking about who has your ears but man this was this his his idea is like man the world and people and media are kind of shaping our ideas of what is true and what is right and what is wrong when he's trying to point us back to the bible that's what the guy van huser is he's writing about he's trying to point us back to the bible and so uh as if you know, I, I'm just imagining you t- tell somebody like, "Hey, your central, your central source of authority ought to be God and His Word." The thing that is gonna come back to you is like, "Well, why the Bible?" Matter of fact, I've had several conversations with a good friend of mine. Uh, his name is Lance. Shout out to Lance. Uh, he and I used to do a podcast called Kaleidoscopic. We were having a conversation from a different angle, and um, you know, he was an unbeliever. Uh, he didn't believe in Jesus. I should say it like that. He he didn't believe in in Jesus devoutly as a as a Christian as that one and only. And so like one of the questions that he would often ask me is like, well, why do you trust this book over any other book? Like what what what's the deal there? Like every other book is gonna claim it's holy and it comes from God. Why the Bible? <coughs> you know. I don't I don't know. I don't have I don't have a great answer for that. I'm gonna be honest with you. I don't have a great answer for that, but I'm gonna tell you why I trust the Bible. And maybe even other people could claim some similar things, but I think that they're that the Bible does have a monopoly on 
something I'm going to get at. But here's why I trust the Bible. Because the Bible tells me to. <laughs> no, okay. Um, and, and I can imagine some of you are like, man, Nico, that's a circular argument. You know, you trust the Bible because the Bible tells you to. Because the Bible says it's trustworthy. Well, I just would imagine, why would you trust me? You know, why would you listen to me? You, If you're listening to this episode on this podcast, it's probably because you enjoy it. Maybe you enjoy the things that I'm, I'm saying or challenging you with. And you trust, hopefully, by this point, I believe it's episode seven now. Hopefully, at this point, you, you at least trust what I have to say since you're giving me the 30 minutes of your day or whatever. Uh, so just imagine if I said, hey, would you just trust me? What What's going to happen? You, let's say you don't know me from Adam. You don't have a reason not to trust me. So you say, you know what? I will give you an opportunity to show me that you're trustworthy. And so I, you know, I say, hey, won't you trust me on this? And you do, and it works out. And so then it builds your confidence for you to trust in me if I say something else, you know? I say, hey, take this lottery ticket uh, and take it down to the lottery office. Trust me, you know? And if it turns out that with the lottery ticket, you've won the lottery, you your trust in me continues to build and build. And, and that's kind of the argument that I take with the Bible. Like its principles are trustworthy and it's it the Bible God's word has God has told me to trust in God trust in his word through the Bible and so the more that I trust God through his word the more that I see that his word is trustworthy um you know last episode we were talking about uh, sex and and the the role of it and marriage and how it points to the gospel yeah this is one example of how I've seen God's word to be trustworthy um, this is kind of an example that uh, I kind of, if you know me in real life, you probably hear me talk about this. You've probably heard me talk about this before. Um, God's word just makes sense. You know, it, it's trustworthy. It, it makes sense here. So like something like not having sex before marriage, it just makes sense. Because when you uh, decide I'm going to not have sex with this person before we get married, what you're doing is you're giving yourself an opportunity to know the person and to grow as a friend before you let your emotions get tied up or your hormones start making decisions for you. <coughs> Excuse me, y'all. Um, like that just makes sense, you know, and and I, I really truly believe that if we practice abstinence, if this was a thing in our world, in the, in the world that we live in, I think that the rates of fatherlessness would go down considerably. Now, this is just my assumption, but just, just at least track with me here. You wait until you have sex. You wait until you're married to have sex. What ends up happening is you are in a better position to parent a child when sex, if, when, if sex leads to a child. If you have sex, you know, you're always, you're always at risk of having a child. But for me, just in my marriage, because I listened to the wisdom of the Bible, I, I got myself married. Okay, In order to get married, I prepared myself financially, mentally, spiritually, emotionally. I prepared, and, and Ken is prepared as well. And we, you know, not having sex before marriage, we were able to prepare ourselves for marriage in a way that if something happened in our marriage where we we had a child, she, she became pregnant, we would be in a position 
to raise the child together as a family. Why? Because now I've already I've already committed my life to her. You know, I've already said, hey, I love you for you, not for the way that you make me feel physically, but because I love you for you. I've committed my life to her. We have placed our we put our lives together financially. We put our lives together emotionally. So when a child comes, we're prepared to take care of it. Now, I, y- y'all, this is just an example. Um, if if that is a part of your story and you're struggling through remaining pure in marriage or whatever, and you're listening to this, I want you to know that God still cares about your purity. He still is redeeming and his blood has still covered you. The The point I'm trying to make here is that the Bible makes sense. Okay. God's word, it makes sense. And um, if you can get with it, like if you can like suspend your belief enough to at least give, to give yourself the benefit of the doubt, I, I'm, I, I've found that it makes sense, okay? When you pair that with God's care of you, um, when you pair that when, with God, with God's wisdom, so I'll say it like this. If God created the world, he knows exactly how it's supposed to be used. He, he knows exactly what it's intended to do. I, I'll never forget, I was on campus, I was trying to share the gospel, I was on A&T's campus, trying to share the gospel with this young man, and he happened to be drinking out of a cup from Chick-fil-A, and I was making this argument about how God, in his wisdom, he knows how things are supposed to be, He things are supposed to be used because he made them, and he wouldn't, he wouldn't give me that, he wouldn't agree with me on this, and so I look at this cup that he's drinking out of, I say, hey man, what did the, the people who made this cup, what, what was the intent of this cup? And the guy goes, man, I, I don't know. I didn't, you know, it could be anything. I said, yeah, but, but what is the, what did the, the people who made this cup, what did they intend it to, to be used for? He says, I'm drinking out of it now, but somebody could use it as a drum. Somebody could use it as a megaphone. I said, yeah, 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 I get all that, but what is it made for? He would never, he would never concede to the fact that it was created to be a cup. It was created to be used to, to drink things. Here's the point I'm really trying to make. It's like, man, God is creator. He has intended design for things, and he's used the word of God to let us know what the intended design for most of the things in this world are. If God is creator, and He He, because he knows more than us, he knows more than you. If you could just submit to that, like God knows more than me. Like I, I remember when I, when I first realized that I don't know everything. <laughs> Uh, I was in high school. I said, man, it would behoove me to listen to what my parents have to say because they've experienced life, a lot more life than me. That's when I first kind of realized that. And I'm still not perfect in that. I still kind of struggle in trying to uh, balance what I think to be true with what other people are telling me. But like once I realized that, it kind of opened the door like, man, God knows what he's talking about. Why? Because he knows more than me. And so now I'm going to try and make an argument for like why that the Bible is the trusted word of God, like the Bible opposed to other, other, I guess, other ancient documents. Um, actually, I'm not going to do that because I, 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 don't, I don't think I can, but I, I, I'll tell you this. Um, the Bible, I've, I found that the Bible is the greatest story ever told in that, man, it tells us the story of creation. It tells us why things are broken um, because of sin, and then it tells us how God is intending to solve those problems through His Son Jesus Christ. I think that's what He's He's intending. He's He's doing that by showing us 
that Jesus Christ is coming to restore the world. And God is doing it for his glory. He's doing it for his renown, even though in our sin we have rebelled against him. I think most people have this concept of God being um, a good and just God. If Even those who don't believe in the, in the Bible, even those who don't believe in the Bible, I think most people believe that there's a concept of God who is just. I think most people believe that there's a concept. So the question is, if you are, if he is totally just, he's totally perfect, he's totally holy, and you know that you've made mistakes in your life, and so you're not, and and, and when you sin, you sin against him, what side of this war does it put you on? Does it put you on the side of justice or does it, of goodness and good things, or does it put you on the side of, of evil? Logical answer puts you on the side of evil. And so, if God and His justice is gonna overcome and make the thing, the bad things in the world right, it means He's got to take you out. But the beautiful thing about the story of the Bible is that it, it shows that God loves you so much more. Uh, and so he's willing to to send his very self to live the life that you should have lived perfect, a perfect life. And then he exchanges places with you. The Bible tells us that story. I, I, so I've got another friend who's also asked me, okay, but where did it come from? And, and, and why can we trust that the words that we have are the words that God intends? So the the words of God come from... The authors of it. So, like, just as an example, it's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy is called the Pentateuch. It's written by what scholars to believe is written by Moses. And uh, and so, how can we trust that what we have is what is supposed to be what God intended? Now, I'll tell you straight up, what we don't have is we don't have the original documents. Um, we don't have Moses's original documents of the first five books of the Bible. We don't have any of those original documents of any of the Bible. But what we do have is we have so many transcripts, 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 manuscripts. We have so many manuscripts of, of the Bible. And that's actually a little bit more trustworthy than the original, the original uh, letter or the original document. Um, we call that an autograph, an autograph. The reason why having more manuscripts than the original autograph is more valuable or even more trustworthy than the original autograph is because, man, we have proof that all of, if they're all saying the same thing, then we know that it's, it's right. But just imagine for a second, if we, if we did have the original autograph and we, but we only have one of those copies because you only have one of the original, um, original copy if anybody had that they could change it and make it say whatever they wanted to make it say they could and nobody would be the wiser but because we have so many of these manuscript copies of this original autograph we can compare it against uh, all the rest of them so that we can see what the what the autograph was actually trying to say it's actually a lot more it's a lot more reliable than actually having the, the original autograph it's, it's a really cool thing that the Lord has done. Um, so the original Hebrew, well, the original Old Testament, Old Testament was written in Hebrew and parts of it was Aramaic. And then the New Testament was written in Greek. And what's cool about that is the New Testament was 
Jesus, when he's when he's speaking, he's speaking Aramaic, but it's being recorded in Greek, which speaks to the transmutability of the Bible. Like, even though it's in English, um, we can trust it. God intended for us to have it in English in the language that we speak, because the language that Jesus as a man spoke was not the language that it was recorded. It just speaks to its transmutability. Uh, so we can trust that what we have is 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 right and, and true and so then some people are going to be like well we got so many translations and some of those translations don't even agree how can we trust the bible well it kind of goes back to what is the process for translating the bible because i think most people think what we do is we kind of some in general culture the oldest version of the bible is king james version that's general culture oldest version of the bible king james most people think that when we get to, like, what I read is the ESV. We get to ESV is that people have looked at the King, King James Version and then made a version for today based on King James. But that's not exactly the process. The process is we go back to those manuscripts, those hundreds and thousands of manuscripts that were in Greek and Aramaic and Hebrew. And as our understanding of Greek and Aramaic and Hebrew gets better and better, man, we we go back to those original source. Here's an example. This is what it this is what people think it's like. I'm gonna give you an example of what people think it's like, then I'm gonna give you an example of what it's actually like. What people think it's like, it's like if I have a message for someone in a different language. I just wanna say spring is on its way. But there's nobody, let's say I'm trying to reach somebody who's Greek, but I don't know anybody who speaks, not Greek, German. Let's say German. Um, I don't know anybody who speaks German, but I do know somebody who speaks Spanish, and they also speak, so they speak English and they speak Spanish. So what he's going to do is he's going to translate that spring is on his way uh, from English into Spanish, and he's going to tell it to somebody who speaks Spanish and French. So he's going to tell the person, so now we're on the second iteration of my message from from English to Spanish, and then he's going to tell the person who knows French. So then the person who knows French is going to translate it from Spanish to French, and then he's going to tell it to the person in German because that person knows French and German. So most people think that's the process. And as you go from English to German, and you've gone through so many languages, there are language iterations there are different words that we use uh, or don't have equal words um or we don't have equal sayings just as an example in spanish you don't say you're going to play the guitar literally when you say play the guitar you really are saying you're going to touch the guitar um I, I think it's tocar anyway um that's just one example of how kind of the language changes as it goes from one language to the next that's not how we translate the bible when we translate the Bible, if I'm trying to get to to somebody who's German, um, we have the we have the the ability to actually translate from English to German. That's what we do in these translations. We go back to the original text. We go back to the original Hebrew. We go back to the original Aramaic. We go back to the original Greek. That's how we get these new translations. We don't translate them from other translations. We translate them from the original docu documents and manuscripts. I hope that that makes sense. That was a very convoluted example, but I hope it I hope it lands. I'm, I'm relying on the Holy Spirit to do that. But this is why we trust the Bible, because it's literally God's word. Y'all, the last thing that I'm going to say on this is the Bible tells us that God, that Jesus is God's word embodied. 
in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God. Uh, it's the logos. Jesus is the word of God. He's the full embodiment of the word of God. This is kind of the, the biggest reason why we got to trust the Bible is because Jesus basically in a, in a manner of words is the Bible. He is the word of God embodied. And what Jesus came to do, I already said this, he came to live the life that you should have lived and he died the death that you should have died. He is the word of God. Not only is he the word of God, but he looks at the Old Testament and he affirms the Old Testament. He's saying, hey, I come from God. And then he looks at the Old Testament, what what Moses wrote and what the prophets wrote. And he says, yes, that actually is from God. You need to trust it. And then what happens in the New Testament is the New Testament. All of the New Testament is just pointing back to what Jesus is doing on the cross. All of it. All of it is talking about how our lives are changed as a result of what Jesus Christ has done. All of the New Testament is looking back to Jesus. Well, it's looking back on what Jesus Christ has done and how it affects our lives. So Jesus, the word of God, who is God, comes and says, hey, the Bible in the past is true. Trust it. Why? Because I'm God. And then uh, the, the Bible um, going forward after Jesus looks back to Jesus and says, hey, this is true and this is right. And it's it's affirming what Jesus has said. That's kind of the biggest reason. Okay. Say all that to say. Men or boys that become men, trust the Bible. Let it be your primary worldview, okay? Trust it. Try it. Walk along someone who is trying it, uh, who's trusting it, who can help you. Okay, that being said, now let's get to my favorite part of the podcast. Let's dig into some scripture. Y'all, this this episode, I want to look at Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. Let's read it together. This is what it says. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he, being Jesus, answered them. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all those others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So what's happening here? Uh, Jesus is doing a, some teaching, and there are some people that, are, that come up to Jesus, and they start to talk about this thing that this, this Roman governor, government official has done. He has... Basically, he's basically killed. He's he's dishonorably killed some Galileans. That's what happens. That's what is happening in verse 1. And verse 2, Jesus comes back and he's like, are you telling me this because you think that they're worse sinners? That these people who died in this way, that you think that they're worse sinners than all the other Galileans? And Jesus continues. He's like, no, they're not worse. But I need you to understand, unless you repent, you will perish likewise. Jesus continues. He says, okay, I'll do you one better. There was a tragedy that had happened in verse 4. He's talking about, he's like, man, there's a tower in Siloam, a a region. It fell and it killed 18 people. And he says, do you think that these people were worse? These 18 people who died because of this tragedy, do you think that they were worse than everybody else in Jerusalem? He's like, no. But unless you repent, you're going to likewise perish. 
Okay, the reason why this is kind of funny to me, Jesus is like kind of savage. Okay, these people, it seems like the way that Jesus is responding to these, the, the people who have brought up, the people who have died in Gal Gal Galilee, by this way, seems like they're trying to like kind of step themselves up from these people who have died. Almost to say they got what they deserved. They got what was coming to them because they were bad people. And Jesus kind of stops them. He looks at them. I'm imagining here. Jesus looks at them in the eyes. Of, Listen, I need you to understand. They are not worse than you. And you're not better than them. Why? Because sin is the great equalizer. He, he, uses, this, he uses another example. Just to show them that sin does not equal tragedy. Because I, I think that's what they were trying to. That's what they're saying. It's like, man, they, they sinned in a great way, so they must uh, have gotten what they deserve. Same thing what happens in Job. Job's friends, in the book of Job, Job's friends look at him and, and all of the disaster, all of the things that have happened in his life, and they say, oh, you must have sinned. You must have done some great calamity. You must have done something. You, you're just getting what, you're being judged. You're getting what you deserve. And Job knows in his heart, no, I haven't done anything wrong. He, he knows that he hasn't done anything to deserve what was, was coming to him. And so that's what it reminds me of. And Jesus is like, he, he's coming at this myth. He's like, nah. Some, he's, I'll be honest with you. Sometimes your sin has real life consequences. But in, in life, these tragedies aren't always a result of your sin. It doesn't, God doesn't always punish us in tragedies like this, like, I, I, I don't know, I used to think that, man, if I, um, if I sinned, if I lied on Tuesday, then I would fail my test on Wednesday. Those things aren't necessarily related. This, this is how I would think about it in high school. If I lied to my parents on Tuesday, then when I took my test on Wednesday, I was going to fail. Those things aren't related. I should have studied. I should have studied. That could have helped control the outcome of the test. But God isn't going to punish me. Well, I'm, a, I'm, I'm presuming this. Okay, I don't, I don't think God is going to punish me for my lie by the way I took my test. And I think that's what Jesus is trying to help these people see and understand. Our sin doesn't always lead to tragedy. It doesn't always lead to like a, um, a unrelated tragedy. We don't, we don't, these people aren't worse off because of their sin. And then he goes back and he says, hey, I just need you to understand, you are just like them unless you repent. So um, those are some observations. You know how I do. I ask a couple of questions. I, ask, I usually ask four questions. But I think that um, this passage is, is even applicable to the church today. So I usually ask them, what's the main idea of this text? And then I say, well, what is the purpose for God's people today? But I think that it's, it's a one-to-one. -one, so I'm not going to ask that in the same way. And then I ask, what is the gospel connection? And then finally, what is the gospel application? So here's what I think is the main idea of this text. Jesus dispels the myth that personal sin is what causes tragedy. That is what I think is the main idea of the text. I think that's what Jesus is trying to ultimately let his disciples know that our personal sin does not cause unrelated tragedy. Personal sin does have consequence, but personal sin does not cause unrelated tragedy. Okay. The, then the gospel, and I think that that's a one-to-one. -one, so I'm not even going to ask what is the purpose for God's people today? What's the purpose for God's church? I think it's a one-to-one. -one, okay. I usually only ask that if it's not a one-to-one. -one. And it's usually in times of like um, how the Old Testament laws 
which we're no longer subject to how those apply to us today, how we would interpret that today. But it's no, it's not, there's not a one-to-one. I mean, it's exactly a one-to-one. So I don't necessarily need to ask that question, but it is God, the purpose for God's people today, that the myth of personal sin is not what necessary. It, it isn't necessarily what causes personal tragedy. Anyway, here is the gospel connection, y'all. Here's and when I say what's the gospel connection, I'm saying what has God done on our behalf to remind us that He has saved us. Okay, so that's that's what I'm what I'm trying to get at. Here's the gospel connection: Jesus, even though He had no sin, He took on the most tragic death so that repentance could mean something. I think that's our gospel connection. The the assumption is people who sin they they get tragedy they deserve tragedy but what Jesus shows us on the cross is that even though Jesus didn't sin he took on the greatest tragedy not just death but he took on the Father forsaking him the Father rejecting him that's what that's what Jesus took on even though he doesn't deserve it so that when he was he was killed and then he was resurrected that our repentance means something. Jesus tells the people, he's like, yo, look, unless you repent, you're going to, you can turn the same way. Because, but here's the thing. If Jesus Christ has never died and was resurrected and never took our place on the cross, our repentance almost don't mean nothing. It's like, I'm sorry, God. Yeah. But your sorrow doesn't pay the price for your sin. Your, your sorrow doesn't, doesn't remove the, the boundary between you and God. Just because you're sorry, it's just like if somebody, if you hit somebody in the face and you say, hey, I'm sorry, it doesn't change the fact that their face is bleeding, you know? I hope you, I hope you don't hit anybody in the face. But, but Jesus took on this tragedy, even though he didn't deserve it. He took on death and rejection from his father so that our repentance could actually mean something. When Jesus died, he took care of our sin. He washed it away. He got rid of the boundary between us and God so that when we say, I'm sorry, man, we are able to run back into the Father's loving arms. Here's the gospel application, okay? This is the question that I'm asking. Um, How does this text rightly motivate us to live godly lives? How does it rightly motivate us to live godly lives? And I say this, sin is the great equalizer, but so is grace. Let us live continual repentant lives. Uh, What do I mean by this? When I look at scripture and I see, uh, how does this rightly motivate me to repent? Number one, it rightly motivates me because I am just as bad as the Galileans who died in the horrible way. I'm just as bad as the those who who lived who died in Salome under the 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 monument falling. I'm just as bad as these people. Sin is the great equalizer, but family, so is grace. Because Jesus pours out grace on us all. All of us have sinned, but God pours out his grace on us all. Grace is the great equalizer. Okay, how does that motivate me to live a a godly life? It gives me the confidence I need to repent. God has given us his grace freely. He says, you can go to the throne of grace to receive mercy in our time of need. Let us repent. That's what we have to do. Ah. Well, it's been another wonderful episode. I tell you, these episodes be blessing me. I don't know. I think it might be blessing me more than it be blessing y'all. But I just have a great time. I have a great time. 
uh, on this podcast. I hope you've been enjoying this episode. This has been another rousing episode of the To The Men After Me podcast. The audio letter to the boys that will become men and the generations that follow. We will see y'all next time. Peace.